Welcome. This is the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. My name's Sophia Kayafis. I'm Marshall Jones. And we're here with our producer, Tun Miai. We're three artists that live and work in New York City. And this is being recorded on the fly in between our many jobs and creative endeavors. We use this podcast to ground us in a space where there are so many ways to, to lose yourself. So join us. We have real conversations with artists we admire on the Art Grind. Welcome back, listeners. This is one of your co-hosts, Sophia Kayafis, and I'm here finally teaming up with Dina Brodsky. Um, we actually interviewed together for the first time. So this week, we spoke to artist, educator, and musician Tim Lowley. Uh, we spoke to him over Zoom about his life, his art, his inspirations, uh, more specifically, his life growing up in South Korea. Um, his daughter, Tema, who's the subject of many of his works, uh, spirituality, and even some great art career advice. Uh, I hope you guys enjoy it and get some art making done today. Enjoy your interview with Mr. Tim Lowley, who happens to actually be serenading us into this interview right now. <laughs> oh, Tim, I'm, I'm just going to say I'm really excited to talk to you today. And uh, Dean and I were kind of thinking, you know, what, what should our plan be when we talk to Tim uh, this Sunday? And, and Dina said it really well. She was like, you know, I think, I think Tim is a man with a story to tell. <laughs> and I agree. <laughs> and that's why I, when I sent you that email, I was like, you know, any stories you can think of, any formative experiences, we could maybe start with you as a young artist, launch into whatever, whatever, we're here. Do you want me to just dive, dive into talking? Yeah. Talk well, I'm speaking to you from the west side of Chicago, Elk Grove Village, which is where I'm, we are now living. And you know, everybody's story, I think, is interesting. Um, I know my own story probably better than most of other people's stories. <laughs> so I'll tell you my story. Um, uh, so I was a, one of five kids. And in the early 60s, my parents decided to be missionaries in South Korea. So when I was three years old, myself, my four siblings, and my parents moved to South Korea. And Korea at that time was still very much recovering from the Korean War. So it was a, a situation where we were constantly, I, I don't think I was thinking about this as a young child, but I think you could, you, you could not help but be aware of our relative affluence compared to those we encountered day to day. And that continued, I think, you know, Korea has become, you know, a relatively wealthy country, but throughout the 60s and even into the 70s, uh, it was it was a place where, uh, as an American, I felt, I felt like, um, I felt rich, even though my parents were not in any way rich. So that was sort of a context in terms of thinking about myself in relation to other people. Um, my, you know, my parents, my father was a hospital administrator. My mother taught puppetry and she mainly taught piano and organ. And both of them were, there was no indication that they had any interest in accumulating wealth. 
they were doing things principally and obviously to do something good for, for other, other people and to engage my life meaningfully. And that, that really shaped my thinking about, well, if you're going to do something with your life, your life should be about that. It shouldn't be about essentially about accumulation of wealth, which is in stark contrast to what I experienced every time I came back to the United States. Mm. So prior to college, I had no art education. Um, I remember at one point when we were back in the, in the United States, going to a high school art show and seeing a picture, a, someone had made a drawing of a, of a girl, a portrait. And I, I went home and said, I can do that. <laughs> so I went home and you know, tried to do my best. And uh, <clears throat> I think something around that time, I was already, even before that, I was making art, but some something about that just convinced me <laughs> I wanted to be an artist, which seemed kind of, in, crazy my 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 parents actually expected i would go into the ministry and become a pastor mm. i i never even had the slightest interest in that i wanted to be an artist <laughs> and you know one could we we may talk about this one could make a parallel between what it means to be a pastor and what it means to be an artist but um so when i went to college um I don't think the college I was going to was particularly unique in this in this sense. And at the time, it's the late late uh, late seventies, early eighties, and the focus on the education was not. Um, I mean, I took figure drawing, but it wasn't really focused on any sort of classical education in terms of art making. It was a liberal arts education, mm-hmm. and. I, you know, I, I came to appreciate later, probably more than when I was there, that it was a really valuable sort of mixing of studying a broad range of subjects while sort of investigating the materiality of art making. Um, the work I was making at that time was much more experimental, playful, um, and, you know, I was really trying to figure things out. Um, then, you know, I got married um, and actually prior to this, I'll, I'll just tell you various stories that I think were profound in terms of their shaping of my work and who I am. Yeah. Um, after my freshman year of college, I moved into a Christian community. Uh, there was like three or four house, houses, each of which had 10 to, I think the first house I lived in had maybe 18 people in it. And we would... sharing goods i mean economically sharing sharing meals together um a focus increasing focus on social justice caring for the poor um and that again that you know having had the childhood i was already i think i already was inclined towards community but that was an experience of particularly one of the houses where the people were all relatively similar age in terms of being young adults. Um, that really shaped thinking about what life could be. Um, and that's where actually where I met my wife and we later got married. And, um, and at that point we moved out of the community but we're still in relation to, to people in the community. You know, there, there were various experiences. I hadn't thought about this. I, I wrote down various things before this but I forgot about this one thing. Um, I've been entering various competitions, exhibitions, 
and some guys in Kalamazoo had, who had had a gallery asked me if I wanted to do a show uh, the fall after I graduated from college. They, they, had, they met with me and it was, you know, it was not an important gallery in an important location, but basically it gave me a reason to make art beyond college. Uh, I know from teaching in a university that it's extraordinarily difficult for students once they graduate to have motivation to continue making art. And that gave me a major reason to make art. I think I might've done it anyway, but it, 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 you know, I'm grateful that those guys gave me a show. I think it was the last show the gallery had. <laughs> I don't know if they sold any of my work or not, but um, so that was, a, that was a, a really helpful thing. How did they know to even approach you? Well, I had had work in these various competitions, uh, small competitions, and they had seen my work in one of those. I think I, I probably took a prize or something. And, um, what was your work like at the time? Were you already drifting towards kind of the egg tempera and the, you know, no, like? No, no, no. No, at that time I was making, I would say, I would characterize my work in college as being really profoundly influenced by. Um, what does it mean to be childlike? You know, I, I, as one of the things about me that most people know is I am a Christian of some sort. <laughs> to qualify that, because I think by some people's definition of Christian, I would not be a Christian. But anyway, of some sort. And one of the things Jesus talks says is, unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And so I was thinking, well, what, would is, what does that mean in terms of making art? How do you make childlike art? And so that was really what was driving me at the time is, you know, looking at children's art and thinking about what, what does that mean? But um, so my early work was very playful, very experimental. Usually things had four or five media in them, collage, color pencil, and um, stylistically incoherent. <laughs> it wasn't, it, I wasn't really thinking in terms of, uh, so much of trying to make a defined style as let, let's just play, let's get this, you know, see what we can do. And sort of it like tumbled out. And I, you know, I think again, coming from, from the background I had, I always had in mind, I want to make work that's meaningful in some fashion. I'm not interested in making decorative art. I'm interested in making something that someone, when they look at it, they think they are perhaps caused to reflect on something they hadn't thought about previously. So that was, that was, um, I forgot about that show when preparing for this, but that was, you know, it was a helpful thing to do. What did it show you after you saw your work on those walls during that show? Who did you see? Did you see yourself as an artist maybe for the first time or? Having the work outside of an academic context. I, I don't think I was content with my work at that time. I'm not sure if my, I'm content with my work now, but at that time, I, I don't think I had a sense that this is the end. I've arrived at the place I want to be. And that was exacerbated as time went on. Uh, so not too long after that, I think, uh, let's see, Sherry and I got married, and I think two years later, a year and a half later, we went to, back to South Korea. She had never been there, but I, so I wanted her to have the experience of that culture. Wow. So we went back to Korea and taught English for a year. And I made art in our bedroom. You know, I was making watercolors and there was an, a growing sense of I wanted to focus on something. I wanted to focus technically on a media. So I was working with watercolor and um, probably 
I would say the single most important connection I made with any artist was with a Korean artist named Imok Sang. And what preceded that, I should go back a little bit. I had gone back to Korea, I think in 1978. So I graduated from high school in 76. I went back to Korea in 78 for nine months. And while I was there, I was at my folks' house, and there was a book by a Korean poet named Kim Chi Ha. And that's where I learned about this idea of minjung art, uh, M-I-N-J-U-N-G. And minjung art, the people who are essentially on the margins of culture, we would call them the poor, the dispossessed, the ignored, the oppressed. Anyway, so Kim Chi Ha wrote poetry, and he actually, he actually was uh, imprisoned for much of his life because of his outspokenness about the government's uh, injustice. Um, anyway, I, I, I mentioned this because when we went back to Korea, I was like, is there an equivalent of this in visual art? And um, one day when I was in downtown in, in Chunju, the city we lived in, I saw this poster of this show and it was like, this looks really interesting. Uh, it's this guy standing in a, in a, like a rice field it was a very compelling image. And so I actually made the trip to Seoul to see this show. And I found out this guy, Imok Sang, was a Minjung artist. I had studied art in college. You know, we had art history classes. And I was very familiar with 20th century in terms of art movements. None of it stuck. Expressionism, you know, German expressionism, I think I had some affinity for that. There are other things about the various art movements that I was somewhat intrigued by, but for the most part, especially in retrospect, it felt like an exercise in capitalism. Mm. That in order to sell art, you have to come up with a new movement and then the next movement and the next movement. And that's how you perpetuate this idea of a market and, and, and art. And I think particularly at the time I was in school and afterwards, there was an increasing disenchantment with that, I think among a lot of artists. That's actually when political art became a big thing was in, in the 1980s. Um, but even then, if I compared, say, Barbara Kruger or Leon Golub with what I saw in Korean Menjungart, it still felt like it's market-driven art, even though it's political in nature. So <clears throat> that experience with the Song was like, I'm finally experiencing something that doesn't feel like it's essentially driven by the market. It's driven by a purpose to give agency to the dispossessed. And I was like, this is something I can dig. I, <laughs> I, if I'm going to be associated in some fashion with something, this is something I want to be you know, connected with. Wow. Um, after that year in Korea, we, I, we, traveled, we had the good fortune to travel through Europe. And that was also critically important for me because my experience of modernism was, and this is going to, this is overly judgmental, but I'll just say it this way. It felt like a bunch of cowards. Yeah. It felt like people who needed to be limited to this thing, that whether it's abstract expressionism or um, color field painting. In other words, you had to reduce all the possibilities to this one thing to be an artist. When I was traveling in Europe and I looked at Frangelico, looked at Van der Weyden, looked at Grunewald, these guys, these artists are trying to do everything. They're not trying to do one thing. They're trying to do everything 
and they're doing it with total deadly seriousness. I mean, it's it was mind blowing to me to walk through the the monastery in Florence where Frangelico's work is. It's like he's completely sincere. There's there's no irony here. It's completely given over to this subject. And you know, as a young artist, I was like, there's no comparison here. There's absolutely no comparison between what I'm seeing here, technically, intellectually, to compare with what I'm seeing in, in contemporary art. There's very little. Um, I agree. And I, I, I agree with your assessment of you know, <laughs> um, the, the coward assessment. But don't, don't you find it ironic that kind of, you know, in, in the 20th century, when all the rules were broken in theory, and modernism where you could paint anything. Um, and I feel like people almost painted themselves into these corners or kind of into these, you know, like, it has to be this, it has to be minimalist, it has to be conceptual. And back in, you know, the Northern Renaissance, which is, I, I guess, what you were looking at when you really only had like 10 subjects, which all, you know, most of which had baby Jesus. Um, but I feel like those guys were so much stranger and idiosyncratic and more imaginative within the kind of, you know, like, like they had maybe 10 stories that they were allowed to tell. And they told their entire existence within, you know, within that. And they used all of their imagination and all of their skill. And compared to that, yeah, I mean, the 20th century is a bunch of cowards. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to insult someone who committed themselves to one thing or another, because I think at the time, (laughs) there was almost no other choice. Uh, I saw artists, I knew artists, there was almost no other choice to be taken, especially during abstract expressionism. If you did not do abstract expressionism, you had no possibility. I mean, George Tooker, (laughs) invisible during abstract expressionism, active at the same time, but essentially invisible, except to a select market. But I I guess I also want to say I'm being overly judgmental. People do things for different reasons. You know, uh, it's it's okay. You can be judgmental on this podcast. <laughs> well, I, I I think it really had more to do with if I'm going to commit myself to doing something, I want to commit myself to doing something that's meaningful. That that is that isn't centrally about having a cool show and you know, getting a review and making some money, maybe possibly, hopefully. <laughs> um, it's kind so, of amazing. You, you had so many different experiences. I mean, the ones you're bringing up, they're all kind of engaging that part of you that says, okay, your voice is your own. It's not, it's not for the market. The idea of the voice is actually an interesting one. I, 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 one of the classes I, I have taught, I teach at North Park University in Chicago. And one of the classes I've taught is a class related to vocation. When I teach this class, it's really about trying to find your voice. What is your voice? And by that, I don't mean your literal voice, but what is the sort of at the essence of your being in terms of being a human being in the world? Um, so that's something that's sort of farther down the road in terms of the, the story I'm telling you, because those are sort of ideas. But there was something about seeing the, the Grunewald altarpiece. Anyway, it's very compelling to me as a young artist to see that. So when I came back to the United States, I decided to try and work with Agtempra. And so I... I didn't know anybody who knew how to use it. So I taught, you know, I taught myself how to make temper paintings. And that changed things a lot for me. Because I don't know if you've done temper, but it's a very demanding technique. 
Um, it's, it's probably the hardest and kind of, I mean, it's the hardest technique I've ever tried. How did you teach yourself how to do it? Because I was lucky enough to have a teacher who, I mean, trained with someone who trained with someone else, et cetera. And even, even with that, even with someone basically holding my hand the whole way through, it was so hard. And, you know, you, you, you make one tiny little kind of scrape and then you're trying to cover this hole in the, you know, like, like, like hole in the surface. Um, how, you know, were you reading like, like, I guess who, who was your teacher um, kind of even amongst the, the old dead masters? So. Um, I, there was, I think two books, well, maybe there was a Robert Vickery book. Robert Vickery is a, he's, he's kind of a wannabe tooker, but yeah, I, I did not study that with anyone. And, it took a while to figure out what is, how do you do this? And one of the principal things about Ectempera, which is the hardest thing <laughs> for most painters to get used to is when you put down a mark, you do not mess with it. With most paint, you mess around with it. With Ectempera, if you want to destroy your painting, you mess with it. <laughs> because anything that's on there, if you get it wet, if at least if it's within the last two weeks, it will soften and come off. So you it basically, you develop a technique that's kind of like a caress. You're applying paint with this sort of continuous caressing-like action, and it slowly builds up this fields of strokes, thousands and thousands of, of really sort of delicately applied strokes that is incomparable. There, there is, I mean, there's a reason why Frangelico is, is so well-known. He was that technique, at tempera, <laughs> he used it to its ideal use. And it has this kind of luminous quality that I really loved. Eventually, I abandoned egg tempera painting because I wanted something I could beat up. <laughs> I wanted a paint surface where I could approach it more um, aggressively. I could sand it. I could do whatever I wanted. So I, I missed that. And that's why I eventually moved to working with matte acrylic because I, I liked, I liked, well, I'll tell you the story about how that happened. I had a major show at the end of the uh, end of the '90s, and at that point, what I was doing was I was doing underpainting with black and white uh, black and white gesso. I'd mix them together and basically make an underpainting with black and white gesso. Mm. Talk about a solid underpainting! <laughs> you basically have the underpainting that's gesso, and I made it as finished as possible, and then I worked over top of it with Ectempera to, to do the color. The irony of this is you think I'm making two paintings, but it actually sped things up immensely. Because for me, at least, if I start working with color, drawing issues get really complicated. It's easy to get those confused. So establishing sort of a monochromatic underpainting and then doing the color on top of it with Ectempera, it actually went faster than, than if I did it from the get-go with Ectempera. So that's what I was, I ended up doing with Ectempera throughout the late 80s and into, through the 90s. But as I was preparing for this show at the Chicago Cultural Center at the end of the 90s, my father died. And what I decided to do was uh, do a, this show as a kind of homage to my dad and as a kind of gesture of, of mourning, use a really reduced color palette, which is, and I decided I'm going to make these paintings with this black and white gesso, add a little pigment in it, but I'm not going to do temper over top of it. Mm. And I, part of what I found was the resulting paintings had a kind of absorption about them. 
And by absorption, obviously, a matte surface is more, uh, you know, absorption, absorbent to liquid. But for me, it was a more, it wasn't just that. It, it had a kind of, um, I don't even know how to say it. It, it wasn't glossy. It was, it was like fresco. You know, fresco doesn't have the same effect as, say, egg tempera oil painting. It's, it's very flat by comparison. Anyway, I found when I did the, that show, I really loved that. There was something in it that felt like it fit better with who I was at that time. And um, I've, my primary medium with painting has ever since been matte acrylic. Uh, fortunately, Golden found it to be a worthwhile thing to make. So they, they have a, a line of matte acrylics. That's, that's what I work with. But I, when I was working with tempera, um, I, I amassed a lot of pigments on my own. And then over a course of time, a couple of artists who dyed their, their pigments came to my studio. So I have tons of dry pigment. So um, it's, that's what I can, I can work with if I want to mix it with medium. I, yeah, I haven't actually painted in quite a while. So it's kind of weird to even talk about painting, but um, so an important thing for me is uh Early in the 80s, you know, I've gone through Europe, I've seen this work, and I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to do as an artist? And my friends were going to grad school, and I decided I want to try and be a professional artist before I think about going to grad school, which is kind of backwards. It doesn't fit the, the model that we have today. So part of, as a result of seeing these works in Europe and starting to work that temper, my thought was, I'm going to make the absolutely best single painting I can and enter it in, in a competition. Because in Michigan at that point, there were like six regional competitions, including one in Grand Rapids where I live. And the result of that was I was winning the top award in almost every show I was entering because I was making this thing that I was at absolutely as best as I possibly could make it. And it wasn't just one of my pieces. It was like I'd spent six months on this piece. And uh, so that my, my work at that time was, you know, I was very influenced by early Renaissance painting, but it was also very influenced by sort of political intentions and questioning, you know, questioning things in that, in that regard. So, yeah, I was working with Egg Tempera. Then, then something really strange happened. And this was in the later 80s. A friend of mine was in New York, and he told PPOW about my work. And they asked me to send some work to them. So I sent them some work, and they started selling my work. One day, the head curator from the Metropolitan Museum of Art shows up at the gallery, goes in their office, and sees this painting I have hanging on the wall. They have not given me a show. He says, I want to buy that painting from the museum. Suddenly, you know, at the age of, you know, I, how old was I? I wasn't even 30. I had a piece in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's insane. And, you know, PBAW was baffled because uh, this just didn't happen. They, you know, they had shown, they had sold work to the Met, but not someone they had never even given a show to. Um, did, did, did they give you a show after that? <laughs> well, this, this, is, this is the lesson I want. If you listen to nothing else, goes up on the podcast, don't listen to anything else. Listen to this story carefully. <laughs> so what happened? Um, a couple of collectors who subsequently over the years bought perhaps 15 of my artworks 
they went to the Metropolitan. They saw a show of recent acquisitions and my painting was in that show. They went back home. What they did not do is try and find out who represent me. They found out where I was. And this is all pre-internet. They somehow found out where I was. They wrote to me, asked me to send them slides. I sent them slides. They said, we want to buy this piece. So suddenly I'm in a conundrum because I am a naive artist. I have no idea how the art world works. And so I'm like, what do I do here? This gallery in New York is showing my work or that, not showing it, but they have my work. Am I obliged to sell the work to this collect through the gallery or can I sell it directly? And so I asked a couple of people who I thought knew stuff about the art world. And they said, if you don't have a contract, just sell it directly. So I sold it directly to the collectors. Well, those collectors started frequently PPOW gallery and started buying work from PPOW gallery, i.e., and this is, this, is, this is not unimportant in my view, because they bought my work, they became interested in PPOW gallery, not the other way around. So they started purchasing. Well, one of the works that was shipped to their home was damaged. So guess who shows, who, who makes a trip from New York to their home to see the damaged work and happens to see my painting hanging in the home as well. The owners of the gallery. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you can imagine what happened after that. Um, I've been preparing for this show in New York and it didn't happen. They dropped me. And so this is, I tell this to, to, <laughs> I tell this to anybody who wants to be an artist, if you're going to work with a gallery, you be loyal to that gallery and you support that gallery any way you can uh, because they deserve it. Now, one can have, you know, one could have say various things about this or that gallery in terms of whether they deserve it. I can't say that, but it is something I, I truly regret and that I, that I, I didn't have the, who cares if you have a contract? These people are the reason the piece is in the Met in the first place. So <laughs> the only reason these collectors know about my work is because of that. So um, uh, if you're going to work with a gallery, work with a gallery that is supportive, but also make it worth their while for them to be representing you. That's, that's kind of a lesson that some people will listen to. Um, yeah, I think that's totally worth sharing. Something to think about. We're just going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, Art Grind listeners. You are listening to season four of the Art Grind podcast. The show must go on. And so we're bringing it to you through Zoom during this difficult time. And I just wanted to remind you guys, we got to keep this boat afloat here. So I'm asking you, please donate to us. It's wonderful to be supported by artists who feel like they're really getting something out of this. And if you're one of those people, go to our website, artgrindpodcast.com. Scroll down to the yellow PayPal button, click it, and follow the prompts. Even a dollar can make a difference. And if you're feeling like you really are strapped for cash and you want to help, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. What happens after that? Did you spoil your chance to get into this one gallery? What's next for you? Well, we moved to Chicago. My wife wanted to go to graduate school in Chicago. So we moved to Chicago and I approached a gallery in Chicago with a show I had been preparing for a PPOW gallery in New York. <laughs> okay. 
And this was a big show and it got reviewed twice in the Chicago Tribune. Yeah. It got it got a lot of attention for someone just moving to Chicago. Suddenly I was on the map in a city I'd never lived in. So in that regard, it was helpful to me to not have had the show in New York, uh, if you're gonna put a positive swing on it. Did you approach the, the gallery in Chicago with the work yeah, yourself? Yeah, I, I did. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like? The gallery at that time was called Gwenda J Gallery. It doesn't exist anymore. And I think what, what won me over to that gallery was they were friendly. The, mm. the assistant of that gallery was Michael Weir of Lions Weir Gallery in New York. I don't know if he's- I know him. I've, I've worked with him before. Yeah. Well, he was the assistant for Gwenda J. And eventually he left to start his own gallery and he actually started his gallery in, 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 um, in Chicago. And actually I showed with Michael after, later I actually, oh my god, I had no idea. Um, so I, I, I honestly, so from what I know of their program, your work actually wouldn't fit into their, you know, I, I think they might have just closed anyway, but the, um, from what I know of their program in New York, it's much more kind of slick than your work is. So, uh, well, if that's the case, I would not be terribly surprised. I did, I stopped by the gallery, um, what was it, last January? Was the Via Selman show in New York in last January? I think it was. So Sherry and I went to New York and when I was there, I stopped by my Michael, Michael's gallery. You know, I don't think Michael would be interested in my work, but whatever the case, um, yeah, I, he was one of the people, he, he's who I showed with next in Chicago. And then the person who took over the gallery when he moved to New York was Susan Gescheidel. And Susan, um, was really good. It was a really good gallery, particularly for the, like the first three years of the gallery. And by that point, I had figured out, uh, and one of the questions uh, you had asked me, Sophia, was about time off. And you know, I could I could spend our entire time talking about time and life with Tema. But by the point of the early 2000s, it had occurred to me I mean, that the piece, one of the pieces I did for that show at the Cultural Center was the Taman Earth painting, which is probably the best known artwork I've made. I probably would be wealthy if I just kept making that painting over and over again. <laughs> but what I realized was, um, how, to, how to put this? Because I'm not sure this is how I would have put it at the time, but I'll put it this way now. I am a member of the most privileged section of humanity on this planet. I'm white. I'm male, I'm an American citizen. There is, a no, there is no more privileged human on the planet than white male Americans. So what voice do I have that's of any significance? Um, over time with Tema, who is sort of on the total opposite spectrum of humanity in terms of typically humans, uh, Tema, I, I mean, I haven't explained this for the listeners, but our daughter, our daughter Tema was born in 19... When was she born? 84. And a day after she was born, she stopped breathing. She had a cardiac arrest. Uh, she experienced ensuing brain damage. And um, we had no idea what that would mean. It was, a, it was the most disorienting experience I've ever had in my life to have, have all this happen. And over the next few years with Tema, our experience was um, she's not going to do this. She's not going to walk. She's not going to talk. She's not going to feed herself. 
she's not going to go to school, obviously. None of that was going to be a part of the, the equation of this person's life. And so the experience was like one of a constant kind of dying of dreams, so to speak. Well, after a while, and I think it particularly after we moved to Chicago, but even towards the late 80s, it was like, well, okay, she's not going to be that. Who is she? Mm. What is the meaning of this person's life? Mm. And this probably is, is influenced by my background as the, the, the child of Christians and someone who chose to be a believer is at the, in my view, at the core of Jesus's teaching is those people who are, we consider most unimportant to our culture are actually the most important people. Yeah. So with Tama, it was like, this is, this human is utterly innocent. There's, <laughs> there's nothing about her that, it, it, you know, every moment for Tema is a new moment. She, there's no indication that she has the ability to learn because she can't remember. You know, so everything is new to her all the time. Mm. And she has this, this just beautiful, a beautiful um, presence about her that of, I mean, she, she gets frustrated and irritated and all the other things that everybody else does, but she doesn't carry any of the baggage that, that all the rest of us carry, or most of the rest of us carry. There's no resentment. There's no, woe is me. There's, it's, um, so after a while, you know, being, again, a member of the most privileged part of humanity, living with someone who's on the total other end of the spectrum, albeit she is the, you know, has the good fortune of being the child of someone who can afford to have her continue to live with them. Um, my feeling was, I have an opportunity here to try and think about this life, this life, Tama's life, relentlessly. And, you know, I think of artists like Ankara, the guy who paints the day state over and over and over and over and over again, right? There's something really monotonous about his practice, but there was something about that. I was like, there's something interesting about thinking about life with Tema and painting as being this sort of constant reflection on something as a way of giving it agency, as, as giving it a presence in, in the world. And so particularly moving into the 2000s, I started doing shows where um, there was a show with Sherry and Tema sitting on the couch. It's called Couch Pictures. It was just a bunch of paintings of the two of them sitting on the couch. <laughs> Nothing else. Um, but again, I was like, and, and you know, part of my strategy at that point in terms of making paintings was to take a lot of pictures and actually take them quickly and rather sometimes just moving the camera or whatever and see what came out of it. And so uh, a lot of them are blurred paintings, which they're acrylic paintings. So if you've ever tried to paint a blur with acrylic, <laughs> good luck. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like a Tebra. But anyway, <clears throat> so that that was, well, I'd say ever since since then, I Tema has been the primary subject of my work, not the exclusive subject, but um, which, you know, if you're trying to get rich and famous, <laughs> it's really stupid. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, I, I, I've been really fortunate, um, you know, the, the, uh, I, I'm going to name them. I, I probably should, but the, these collectors who have been so support, so supportive to me, Nat and Georgia Kramer, um, 
suggested to Coughlin Del Rio Gallery in Los Angeles that they include me in a drawing. They did a biennial drawing show. And so I sent some pieces out. I, I didn't know anything about Coughlin Del Rio. I was like, oh, it's a gallery in LA. It sounds interesting. I'll send them some work. I sent them three pieces. They all sold. I was like, um, <laughs> maybe I should go out there. So I think that I think it was the second time they did this show. I went out to LA and I met Marty Coughlin, Elena Del Rio. And um, they started giving me shows. Why in the world? <laughs> I don't know. But a little bit about Coppin, it was Coppin Gallery and then became Coppin Del Rio. You might have heard of one of the artists who started out with him. His name is Kerry James Marshall. You ever heard of Kerry James Marshall? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. Well, this is something that tells you a lot about Coppin Del Rio Gallery. While he's represented by huge galleries, he still sends them work. That's awesome. <laughs> not, not much, but you know, I have this a funny experience with, with I, I hope it's okay that I tell you this, but uh, Elena, I was talking with her and she said, uh, Carrie sent us a painting. It sold before we even got it. He, she said, <laughs> I had this strange experience that my, my uh, calculator, whatever, didn't have enough zeros on it. <laughs> You know, that's one of them good good problems. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but and also, you know, when he had a he had a solo show at the MCA and they had this big gala dinner and all these you know ritzy people were there and Elaine and her husband were off in the corner, you know, seated off in the corner. And Carrie James Marshall gets up and he says, Elena, are you here? In front of this entire audience, he calls her out. And he credits her and, and Marty for being the people who helped him start out. Uh, this that, you know, it says something about Carrie James Marshall because he's represented by some you know, really big name galleries. And he made, the first thing he did was, this is where I started. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I feel extremely fortunate that they started representing me and they still represent me. They moved to Seattle eventually, and it, their operation has, has reduced in size. And it, you know they're struggling like a lot of other galleries because of the, the COVID stuff. But if you look at their roster, you can see that they're serious about they're serious about showing work that's meaningful. And um, I've, I'm, I'm very honored to be represented by them. Um, I need to find another gallery in addition because <laughs> my work is hard to sell. <laughs> but uh, so if there's any gallerists out there who think, oh, I want to sell some work that's hard to sell. <laughs> um, okay, so if there's any gallerists who are listening to our grind, the, uh, other than the two or three that we've interviewed, who've all, by the way, closed their gallery about a week, who made the announcement about closing their gallery about a week after being on this podcast. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, so, so, so Tim, hopefully we're not going to jinx your career. If there's any other <laughs> gallerists listening right now, uh, Tim's work is absolutely gorgeous and, and meaningful and always, you're not exactly against the grain, but you're not exactly with the grain either. Just, just, just your own thing. The way you explain your, the way you explain your relationship with Tema it really, I, I felt like I, when I was looking at your work and I've seen it, I've seen it on Instagram, but I went and looked through your website and I felt that exact experience that you were helping me to know someone that could tell me something that no one else could. Mm. And I felt really 
<laughs> grateful. Hmm. Uh, so Tim, there's actually something you said a little a little earlier that I wanted to go back to. You said that you chose to be a believer. But so you make it sound as though belief is a choice, not a um I mean, you said you you grew up, you know, you grew up in a family of missionaries, so it must have been given to you at some point, but it was also a choice that you made to either, either to believe or to keep on believing. Is is, is that kind of the right way of interpreting that? Well, it's interesting because I don't think of it as belief. It's weird. (laughs) It's weird. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this story that Jesus told when he was he was engaged by a lawyer, a teacher of the law, and uh, the this teacher said, "How do you enter the kingdom of God?" And and Jesus said, "You know what does it say in the law?" And he said, "You know he he gives him the answer: Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself." And Jesus says, "Well, go do that." <laughs> the guy says, "Well, who's my neighbor?" And so Jesus tells this parable. And this parable was in my head for about two years. Every time I went running, I was thinking about this parable. It's a, it's a really charged parable. So the parable is, um, there's this man on the road from, I think it's from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he gets mugged and is left for dead by the southern road. He's not dead. Uh, along comes a Pharisee, and the Pharisee uh, sees the man, but he decides not to stop. He keeps going. And the Sadducee comes along, and uh, these are both uh, important people in the temple. They actually had, according to Pharisaic law, they had legitimate reason not to stop. They weren't supposed to touch someone who was bloody. So they actually had a legitimate reason not to stop. And then along comes this guy. Yeah, I'm saying this somewhat sarcastically, but that was the case. They had a legitimate reason. And along comes this other guy who's a... um, a Samaritan who's you know, regarded as not part of the insiders, and he decides he's going to help this man. And he helps a man, puts him on his donkey, takes him to a hotel. So he, he, when he leaves, he says to the hotel manager, I'll be back, I'll pay the bill, take care of this guy. And then after that, Jesus says to, to, the, to the Pharisee, well, which, which one of these loved and the lawyer says, well, the last one. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. I spent, like I said, about two years thinking about this. this it's a really charged parable, especially in the, in the context of evangelical Christianity. Um, I'm, I'm going to probably upset some people by what I'm going to say now. The, the, the recipe for salvation in traditional evangelical Christianity is to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And that bingo, you go to heaven. What Jesus says in this parable suggests something quite otherwise. What he says is, if you boil it down to, to love is to deeply and empathetically engage the other towards giving the other agency. It's that simple. That's what he did. He deeply and empathetically engaged the other towards giving him agency. That is, to me, that, (laughs) that says something totally different than I made some sort of statement of faith or I did, it's like, no, you are called human being, whoever you are, whatever you believe, you are called to engage the other towards giving the other agency. It's that simple. Does that make sense? Of course. So, so when I, you know, 
I, I, I'm probably not the best person to talk about in terms of theology and the like, but um, if that's what Christianity is, and I think is that's at the core of Jesus' teaching, yeah, I don't think that's exclusive to anybody, whether they're Muslim, Jew, Hindu, or whatever. That 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 idea is a simple idea, yes. <laughs> but it's one we as human beings have a really, really hard time doing. But it's something that even as artists, I think we can, and, and this is part of what motivates me in terms of painting Tema. How does one deeply and empathetically engage a human being like Tema and give her agency in some fashion? I had a workshop with a poet the other day named Padraig Otuma. If you guys don't know who Padraig Otuma is, you should look him up. Um, but he, he's an incredible poet and writer and theologian and lover of Christ. And we were talking, we were, we were listening to him and he said something I wrote down. He said, the question of our personhood is the sight of the presence of God. And mm -hmm. I feel like, that really speaks to me. It's, it's, I feel like it speaks to what you're saying too, um, to engage the other. Another thing you said was, the eye with which I see God is the eye with which God sees me. I feel like in so many ways, making art is an incredibly spiritual experience. And um, I think my work is all about spirituality in so many ways. Um, and I feel like that's why I resonate with your work so strongly. And I love that you talk about your faith and, and you use the parables to kind of explain your reasonings and your, your love for, for making things and, and relating to others through the image. And, and I had some sort of life crisis and I went to Jerusalem because that's where, where everyone is religious. And my, my, my sister Maya was studying there at the time. And I ended up getting really, really drunk with, with a rabbi uh, <laughs> at, at like four in the morning. It was some holiday where you're supposed to drink a lot and stay up all night. And he was very, very young. Um, but he says it kind of said something that stuck, um, you know, stuck, stuck with me. Um, and it was uh, in whatever whatever sect that he was a part of, I think. Um, he said that they believe that there's a thread to God. And, you know, if, if you never break it, the thread just stays as long as it is. But if you kind of go away from that and choose to come back, um, then, you know, the thread gets retied and it becomes shorter. So a person who has chosen to believe, um, rather than just growing up with it and taking it for granted, their connection to God is stronger than the connection of the people who've never, you know, like who've never questioned it and who've never doubted. And I don't know if that's what you were saying, but that's what it made me think of. No, yeah, Dina, I love that story. I think it's excellent. I think um, it kind of reminds me of my relationship with art too. <laughs> so one thing I thought might be interesting to talk about with you, Tim, is your love of Antonio Lopez Garcia. Yeah. So early in the 90s, I bought the book. <laughs> the book. The Rizzoli <laughs> book. Uh, there's no other art book that I would hang on to if I was drowning. And I don't know if you've seen the film, uh, Dream of Life or The Quince Tree Sun, depending on different translations, but there are a couple scenes in that movie that that really relate to what I was just talking about. Um, 
one of them is uh, he's been visited by this Chinese artist and, and she's really baffled. She says, you know, when I was studying art, they said, you, you should never put the subject in the middle of the, of the painting. He, he's drawing this tree, it's right dead set in the middle of the composition. He, and his response to her is, it's the most important thing. <laughs> it's like, okay. If you notice, he almost never finishes anything. He, it's like, he's not principally interested in making a finished artwork. Most realists make finished artworks. Right. He almost never finishes anything because he's not interested in that. He's interested in the subject, <laughs> right? He's principally interested in, again, this idea, how do you give the subject agency? You pay attention to it. You look at it. You're attentive to it. You keep coming back to it. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny to me and baffling how realists... <laughs> sort of want to learn this technique from him. And it's like, it's utterly simple. Pay attention. <laughs> that, it's that simple. Look at it and don't, don't make your art practice about self-aggrandizement. Make it about the subject. And, you know, again, it seems like an utterly simple thing, but man, it is hard. It's the world that is his world. It's, you know, it's his studio, it's his tree, it's his city. But to, I don't know, to me, it was always about, I guess what you were saying, but also about love, right? Like, like the willingness to pay that much attention to something so simple. Yeah. There are other artists I find important, but he's the artist who, you know, it, I don't know if either of you were, had the opportunity to hear him talk when he was in Boston uh, back, you know, what was that, 10 years ago? But it was, it was an amazing experience where there's this auditorium in the museum in Boston. It was sold out like a month in advance. It was packed. And I looked around and I knew a lot of the artists there. Wow. When he walked out, I think it was the, the audience stood and clapped for at least five minutes. I've never heard anything like that before. Wow. And it you know, clearly indicated that this, this person is a really important uh, person for many, many artists. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of artists like Richter, you know, Giovanni Bellini, a lot of artists who I have great admiration for and love their work. Uh, and Donald Lopez Garcia's is the work that that those simple ideas, not, not so much the work. I think his work is amazing and wonderful, but it's more this idea of what's the work, working principle behind his work. It's it's unusual. Um, so, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit more about materiality in your work, because I, when I look at your paintings, I, I guess that's why I brought Antonio Lopez Garcia up was because I feel like you both overlap in that way. Like, it seems like when you're painting, you're thinking about the surface, you're thinking about the way the paint is touching the surface. Yeah, I'm not sure I think about that that much, but I think it it was in part a result of working with Tempera, you know, having this sort of paint as a kind of caress and then moving to this matte acrylic. I'm interested in painting towards skin. Skin has a very unusual surface phenomenologically, right? When you look at skin, it's unlike anything else you look at. For one thing, you're looking through. <laughs> you're not just looking at a surface, right? Mm -hmm. But you're also looking at something that's alive. And I, I don't think it is possible for an artwork to do the same thing, but I think phenomenologically, it's interesting to try to try <laughs> to try and do something where the surface feels like it evokes touch, evokes the surface of our body, um, not necessarily even in how it looks, but more in terms of how it 
feels. Um, yeah, I don't think much about that, but I think I, the way I paint this idea of painting as a form as caressing, caressing the surface is is probably as good a, a metaphor for what I'm how I approach painting as as uh, as any. Drawing's a little different. I, I think I probably tend to be a little bit more aggressive and more <laughs> like pushing it into the surface kind of uh, thing. But um, actually, you mentioned a little earlier that you haven't painted for a while. Where has life taken you recently that hasn't been allowing you to paint? Well, let's put it simply. Give me a show and I'll make paintings. <laughs> the last show I had was with Coffin Del Rio two years ago. I don't get up the way some, you know, I think Andrea Lopez Garcia would get up and he'd go and paint. It's like, I have to have a reason to make art. So I have three bodies of work that I'm currently, at least in my head, working on. I'm thinking of a two-part show for South Korea. I don't know if it'll ever happen. It may not. One is a series of drawings, which is in progress. Um, but they're drawings that are related to vocation. The people who are depicted, it's related to their vocation. And that's going to be probably the first body of work I've done in a long time that's not Thomas-centric. She'll be part of it. Tim, I'm so interested now. What, what are these drawings about? Where did you get this idea from? So uh, last year, a woman whose parents were uh, missionaries in South Korea also, her father was a uh, chaplain in a Presbyterian hospital in Kwangju in South Korea. In 1980, Korea was a military dictatorship throughout the time that I was growing up there. And in 1980, there was a uprising, democratic uprising in Gwangju that the military brutally suppressed. And it was really, it's considered as a key moment in the democratization of South Korea. The father of this woman who approached me sent me these photographs. He took photographs of what was happening. He photographed victims in the hospital. Uh, he photographed people in the streets, demonstra demonstrators, um, people who have been bludgeoned. This, incidentally, this, the woman who, who told me about these photographs, she was a child at the time, and she remembers her parents harboring students in their attic to hide them from the police. Um, so I'm thinking about making a series of paintings based on these photographs. And I'm thinking of titling the show Deposition. Deposition, you may be familiar with its use in our history, referring to like the deposition of Jesus, where he's being taken down from the cross. And the paintings of Tema, I'm thinking of thinking about van der Weyden's painting of the deposition that's in the Prado. If you don't know the painting, you should definitely look it up. It's an amazing painting. Um, but I'm thinking of sort of referencing that painting in some fashion with these paintings of Tema. That's thinking of the deposition as a sort of a motif within Christian painting. Uh, but then a deposition is also a term used for legal evidence brought to court from outside of court that's different than a, a person coming and testifying. And so I'm thinking about this in relation to showing me as an American showing work about Korea in South Korea um, as a kind of deposition, essentially saying the world is watching. That this is something we're thinking about, we're reflecting on. In some ways, I'm thinking of paintings that have a similar kind of gravity as Richter's paintings. Uh, if you're familiar with these paintings by Gerhard Richter that he made based on these ter terrorists in Germany who were uh, mysteriously committed suicide in prison. And um, it's, it's, in my view, his best work. It's a series of these, these sort of blurred paintings. 
Mm. So anyway, I'm not someone who gets up and paints. <laughs> it's like, I have to have a reason to paint. And if I have a reason, I paint. Earlier in my life, uh, I had a reputation. So I was having people invite me to do shows. And when you have a show, then you, you, know, you can show your work, show work you've done or, or whatever. I'm not at that point in my life anymore. Um, and <laughs> having a show lined up is a highly motivating way to, to make art. So without that, um, it's a different experience. What is what is your kind of day-to-day life looks like? Well, it varies. When I'm teaching, I'm teaching. And I, I, I have an unusual position at North Park University. I, I started working as gallery director in 94, I think, at the university. And then I became artist in residence. And then I became professional faculty. So I have the luxury of teaching half as much as most faculty, and I only teach advanced level courses. So you can ask for a better, I mean, I teach senior seminar in art and then uh, advanced painting and or advanced drawing. So I, I'm really, really fortunate. And I've got amazing colleagues, all of whom who, who, who could do whatever I do twice as good. So I, I, I love it. But this fall has been very weird in that Fewer students were there, so we have very small classes and, again, very good classes. Um, but I, I haven't been making much art. You know, I, as, I, as I said earlier, if I don't have a show lined up, I don't typically, it's, I need that motivation to make art. I don't make art just to make art. I make art because it has a particular place it's going to go. Um, so... I am working on this. The, I mentioned these three projects. I am working on the drawing project right now. Let's see. What were we talking about? <laughs> You're talking about your daily life. Well, it's caring for Tema. I mean, we're fortunate in that uh, we, my wife was a United Methodist pastor for about 23 years, and she just retired this summer. And so we just bought a house. We have not owned a house before. So this place where I'm sitting is actually a house we are buying with our daughter's caregiver who lives in an apartment attached to the house. And um, we've been settling into the house and, you know, doing stuff, teaching, eating, (laughs) walking for a great walk today. Um, Yeah. I, it, it feels like a, both for my wife and I, it feels like a time of like what's next kind of time. Mm. So as I said, uh, I make art when I have a particular destination and I'm most productive in that time period. But also, you know, I'm at that time in my life where um, some people just sort of stop. I don't want to just stop. I want to keep going. I mean, in terms of, you know, doing what they do, I will probably, I'll probably retire uh, from teaching when I'm 65, which is three years from now. I don't plan on ever retiring from, from making art. Uh, not that if, if I can avoid it. Um, yeah. I'm, I probably am sounding sort of desolate or something. <laughs> no, you sound like an artist. Like, I think this is what the life of an artist is. And sometimes you have a show coming up or you have a destination. Yeah. And sometimes you're just on a platform waiting for the next train to come. Uh, but believe me, when you're on the, this end of the line, <laughs> you don't want to wait too long for the train. <laughs> and just one last question before we let you go. But um, I think I was asking you if there's something that you wish artists younger artists knew 
something that you want young artists to know that maybe are listening to this and try to figure out why you're making art. I think even as a college student, try and figure out why are you doing this? Because once you, once you graduate from college, there's almost no motivation, external motivation for you to make art. Unless you're really fortunate. I, I married someone who was supportive in terms of my making art, but as I watch my students, it's actually relatively infrequent that they continue making art. And it's because there's no, there's no external motivation to do that, unless you're really lucky and have a gallery that you know, demands that you make work. Um, it's hard to continue making art out in the, in the real world, so to speak. For me, it has been important to have something I feel strongly about to make art about. But shows have been very important. That is, you know, to, to continue to produce work. And that's, I don't like the word produce work because it sounds like you're just, but you have to make it. <laughs> Youthful motivation sometimes passes. I remember you saying something about voice and vocation. Yeah. Does that have something to do with what you're saying when you're saying, you know, why you make work? Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's, it's critical, not critical, but I think it's very helpful to understand who you are. Um, when I'm talking about what, what is your voice, there are a variety of ways you can, you can sort of explore that in terms of who are you, right? And, and your art is going to come out of that if you make art. It's going to come out of that. And so understanding that can be very helpful in terms of um, understanding what your art is going to be about. Me personally, um, I was intolerable between 18 and 22. So I thought that I knew who I was, what everyone else was, and kind of why I was better than them. But in retrospect, I, I feel like if I could go back to myself at that time and just smack that person because I knew nothing, either of the external world or the internal world or how complex and, you know, kind of like how non-black and white the world actually is. I was so certain back then. But does anyone know who they are when they're that young? Because I feel like it takes years. Well, that's a, you know, that's a good question. But I think you know, the, the purpose of that class, for lack of a better word, is to try and understand who you are. Understand your being in the world and what, what the nature of your being and, and what is your voice. And a voice is not a, a neutral thing. It is actually a... It, it, your voice and my voice are different. And that's not because of any, any intention on our part. We just have different voices. And I, I actually see the voice itself as not just a metaphor for vocation, that there, there's a relationship between voice, that is how we speak, how we in, encounter other people, and our vocation, that is that thing that we're doing in, the, in, in life. And, you know, it doesn't to me matter whether someone goes on to be an artist or not. It matters, though whether they have a meaningful life in some fashion, right? I, I, I think that's, who wants to lead a meaningless life? <laughs> I, would hope, I would hope for students that they would go forward in the, and have a life that they feel is meaningful for themselves and hopefully for other people. Um, and I would say the same for artists. I hope that they, they, they find something, some sort of practice that is meaningful for them, that they, they, they're making things because it means something to them. And you know, motivation comes that, you know, I don't know about you, but I think most people, the motivation to make art is because it is a meaningful thing for you. <laughs> yeah. 
do you think that having a meaningful life, much like belief, is a choice that you make? Like it's not something that you drift into. It's not something given to you. It's not something that you feel you choose to do it. I mean, meaningful assumes that someone else finds it meaningful. I mean, you, 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 it can be meaningful for you and meaningless to everybody else. But when I'm saying it, I, I, I guess I say it with the hope that you're trying to do something that's meaningful to other people. It's not simply meaningful to you. I think, of course, it has to be meaningful for you to have the, you know, to sustain a practice. But I think, why make something if it's, you know, if it's just for you? What <laughs> it seems kind of narcissistic, or, or, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm actually saying anything meaningful here, but. <laughs> no, you are. You're trying to get at something. Um... Tim, you were absolutely wonderful. My one last question is you're, you're also a musician, right? Yeah, <laughs> I am. So what kind of music do you play? <laughs> well, you can, if you, if you Google Tim Lowley, you'll find some music somewhere, but um, I'm on Bandcamp with one album. I've been making music in the church for quite a while with mixed experiences. And the best experiences have been where it's been about community about working with other people, about doing things that are improvisational, about writing music. I'm, I'm not someone who's very interested in, in regurgitating things that have been done before. I'm interested in, in music making as a creative practice. I do, but I, you know, I've also done music. I had a band we toured back in the, in the, the aughts, so to speak. Um, but currently I, I, don't have, uh, I don't have a band. I look forward to actually doing more but um, it's not happening right now. Tim, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for taking the time. And I don't know, is there any last words of wisdom? Is there anything you would like to leave people with in this weird year where I feel like everyone needs a little bit of help? Well, one thing I would encourage people to do is take advantage of this kind of thing you're doing. That is take advantage of this kind of technology to connect with people you have never met before. I think that, that probably the most meaningful thing for me this fall has been making these, doing these virtual studio visits with these artists whose work I'm interested in. But as you guys are experiencing, there's something about building community via this kind of interaction that's really, really important. Not just important for you, it's important for other people as well. And um, we get bigger as we go. <laughs> so, Tim, thank you so much. Well, I'm honored that you guys asked me to do this. Thank you so much, Tim, and uh, take care of yourself. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be in touch. <laughs> well, it's good to meet you, Sophia, and good to see you again, Dina. Good, good to see you, Tim, and good luck with everything. Well, folks, that was the talented and inspirational Tim Lowley. Wishing him all the best in his studio this coming year. And um, don't forget, our grand listeners, we need your support. Go to artgrindpodcast.com, scroll down to the yellow donate button. I'm leaving you here with Tim Lowley and Baby Mountain, available at bandcamp.com. The song is called A Stone at Dawn.
Thank you. 